Hi, I'm Nicole Breeden. And I'm Kira Brekurek. And you're listening to ProPrac, a podcast where we explore the professional practice of artists and hear their stories. Thanks everyone for listening to ProPrac today. Today we are out of the studio and we are recording off a computer in an apartment. We are also speaking to a guest via Skype, so the quality isn't as high as we usually like to have. However, we think you'll really enjoy this episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening to ProPrac and now over to the show. Christina Hayes Haley is an artist, curator, theatre designer, educator and new mother. Christina is one third of the sisters Hayes a trio of sibling artists living and working between Melbourne, Australia and Dallas, Texas. Christina is the gallery director of the Beatrice M. Hagati Gallery and an affiliate assistant art professor at the University of Dallas. Christina's figurative paintings are based on imagined and real personal histories and shared stories. Born as a fifth-generation Montanan but raised in Melbourne, Australia, by her American father and Filipino mother, has led to travels both imaginary and real to explore her diverse heritage and familial stories. Her painting practice involves working with her subjects, often family and friends, through play acting, storytelling and dressing up to create theatrical tableaus. Christina graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the Victorian College of the Arts in 2004 and completed a Master of Fine Arts at the VCA in 2015. Christina has exhibited extensively both nationally and internationally. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christina. Uh, would you mind beginning by telling us the story of how you became an artist? Of course. Thanks for having me. I appreciate um, being on here. Um, it's been great listening to everyone's stories. And I guess mine starts, um, like a lot of people, in childhood. So I am one of three sisters. I'm the eldest. And I was born in Montana, um, fifth generation, and then my parents picked up and moved when I was three. Um, I think that has a little bit to do with why I was drawing because um, the first plane trip I took, they definitely gave me just a pad of drawing paper and a pencil and <laughs> said, yep, that's the next 15 hours. And um, people, people told me that I was talented, and so I believed it, and then that's where I think it all <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely grew up thinking that um, talent was a thing, which is not what I think now. Um, but it it kind of ended up being a helpful thing, believing that you were yeah. I was like, great. <laughs> um, let's see. From there, I was just drawing. And I was first published um, at six years old. I didn't know about nepotism at the time, but... Um, yeah, fun fact, my dad was a Baptist minister growing up. So he um, basically had a church that he was preaching to. And I got published in the church bulletin, and I still have that <laughs> And it was this weird cartoon um, <laughs> that I don't know what they thought about. Um, and then, yeah, let's see from there. Did you have, like, early aspirations of being an artist at this point? Yeah. They were, yeah, they were huge. <laughs> well, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a cartoonist. Um, so I filled up sketchbooks with what I thought were funny cartoons, but I didn't really invest much time in um, jokes or storylines. It was more the characters and stuff like that. So they weren't really cartoons. Um, and my parents were super supportive because 
they felt like they didn't get supported um, growing up. Kind of, well, my mom got a long and interesting backstory of a life that um, growing up in the Philippines and um, and then and sort of like moving around a lot and not really having the opportunity to draw. Um, but she said she was very good. So that was where that talent thing tied in again. I was like, oh, I've like inherited this. Yeah. And then um, my dad, um, yeah, wasn't really overly encouraged to draw. So they they really encouraged me and then my sisters, and it turned out to work because the the three of us all ended up in um, in the arts. And we lived in America, then we moved to Australia. Then we moved to America and we moved back to Australia. And I think there was another. There was a lot of back and forth between the continents. And um, I grew up in Brunswick, back Sydney Road for a while, back in the 80s. And it was a very, very different place back then. I used to be able to run up and down Sydney Road and I knew all the bakers and the jeweler and and everyone. And, um, and there was a lot of factories and you could kind of like climb over the roofs some of the houses and get into them. So yeah, Brunswick was um, a very happening place. And then my when my parents, um, they decided to move back to America and we moved to this place called Spokane, Washington, which I've just visited. And it was the opposite of, you know, street with trams and shops and everything. It was really rural. Um, no one walked. A lot of, um, it was kind of, um, a town that wasn't thriving. It is a bit more now, but there was a, definitely a wrong side of the tracks and it was like literally you could walk. We lived there and that was very hard. My dad couldn't get work and my mom was a nurse and then um, so she was kind of the main breadwinner and um, they had the marching band and everything. So we were encouraged at school. Um, but I, I think at that point, I thought we were going to live there forever. So I guess to tie back to the whole art thing. Mm. Um, and so I had things planned in my head. And then at 13, we moved to um, Laylor and Thomastown area. And we, my parents um, moved there because we had cousins there. So we, it was like we were coming back to Australia. And it tore me up because mm. I had to leave my best friend and like all, you know, I was American. And then we came to Australia and then we went to a, um, Catholic high school and I had never worn a dress before or a uniform and so then I had to put on a dress and a uniform and I remember we didn't have money because it cost a lot to move across the world and um, so and it was the school year was out so they ended up only having um, one secondhand uniform that we could buy and it was gigantic um, and I and <laughs> had to wrap it around myself and then tie it with like something and so we were kind of poor wherever we went which kind of ended up affecting me but uh, my mom said it didn't matter mm-hmm. she said it doesn't matter I'll just like roll it up she didn't know that you should cut the material before you make the hem and so she <laughs> no. just rolled it yeah so it was a mess and um I think something and then this goes ties into with Esther um that kind of making do but being told that clothes don't matter really affected us because <laughs> like, we went to design and, uh, well, she, you know, she did, but um, I've always thought about it as well, like in my paintings, um, thinking about how you can tell something visually through, through clothes um, and different identities. So I think having um, – and then when I went to that high school, 
I was this real oddball, but somehow I was able to become popular just by being an American. (laughs) 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 Uniform, everything. What year was this around? Like, is this like 90s? Yes. Yeah. So everyone was wearing the USA jumpers. Yeah. and, And, um, yeah, all this, and and I remember like people were acting like gangsters um, at school, and it was weird because the reason that we had moved back, like left Spokane and moved to Australia, was because of like gangs were moving their drug production up, and so um, like there was a lot of shootings and drive-bys and stuff. So it was it was that was a very active scenario there, and so it was really weird coming to a place where then people were acting that out, but they weren't at all, um, you know, it wasn't happening in that way um, there. So that was strange. Um, So it got me thinking a lot about place and how we um, understand where we're from. And I was curious about that, um, that identification with another country through TV and everything, but I milked it. Like, (laughs) as much as I could I I looking back but I wanted to be an artist so I always had that thing so um did all the art classes and everything and um my dad said when I was probably 13 to that I needed to get a uh, a job so I started working at at 13 and I had an early experience with money which did not result in me being good with money. I learned really bad habits um, back then. But one thing that I did do that was good is I was able to put myself through night school for um, drawing and painting at La Trobe Street College, which is in the city. Um, It still exists. They run it. And it was great because I went after I, I would do art all day. And they had really great, great teachers there that helped with the portfolio and drawing and painting and all of that mm-hmm. that's so incredible like for a 13 year old to or a teenager to want to be wanting to put their money towards education rather than you know yeah totally. yeah, yeah. It, ended, it ended up being um it ended up being really good I didn't do it straight away so I did that at 15 so for the yeah. first two years I um I was just trying to buy those USA jumpers <laughs> Because we just couldn't, like, we def- definitely couldn't um, keep up with the Joneses yeah. type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when once I realized that that just wasn't working out, because um, everything was brand names, so <laughs> then I started saying, oh, well, I'll just be an artist and... Um, really yeah, lean into it. And I really believed in this kind of um, um, thing that... I was really in love with art back then, if that makes sense. So that was where I poured energy. Um, And, you know, I went out and did all the kid stuff, but, yeah, that was – I was kind of like – I thought I was a bit special. (laughs) Going to, like – I was like, I had this other life, you know, and so I would just take the train into the – because Epping's the end of the the line back then. Mm -hmm. And so the train in – and then, you know, go into the city and it was like a big deal for me yeah. and then do this like art class at night and then get a Snickers and go home. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> it was a good life. Um, yeah. So moving on from there, did you go on to study 
um, straight from high school or did you take some time off in between? Yeah, so I went straight from high school and I would credit it because of those um, classes to the VCA and um, I applied for all the, all the schools and um, I had help with my portfolio. And I think because I could talk about contemporary artists that were showing at the time, like my teachers at the school were like Juan Ford and Lily Hibbard and Michael Vale. That's so cool. Um, yeah, it was amazing. And like, we were just bland. And so I had all these names that I could just rattle off. Of, and it, I think for a high schooler, it, it like looked more impressive and like later I, you know, friends told me they're like, yeah, I said, you know, my favorite artist was an impressionist. Yes. And I kind of rolled <laughs> Like it was a little bit of an edge, which helped. Um, even though I really did like, like the impressionists when I was, and I still do, but like, it was just something that you could have something else. Um, and they were really so kind. Like they invited me to their art openings and stuff. And I remember like getting this invitation, it was six to eight. And so I thought like, well, I'll just go at eight because I thought like to be cool, like you show up a little bit late to something. And then it was at TCB and it was closed, you know, because it was over and everyone was at the bar. And so I'm like calling the artist. (laughs) (laughs) Like really embarrassing stuff like that, like which was back with the student being like, hey, where's the party? um but yeah so that like that was just it for me and I haven't really talked much about my sisters because I wasn't (laughs) they weren't really in the picture as much like Mm. I was loved them and everything and we were like hanging out but um Esther kind of came up after me she was a year and a half through high school and she was killing it with like the costume stuff and I remember going to this community play that she did and it was Jesus Christ Superstar and she did this amazing scene with these lepers um that they were wearing these weird material things and that was for me when I was like theater is amazing um Mm. and I really wanted to be a part of it um and then she went to the VCA and did costume design so we overlapped there for about a year and a half well I guess it's a three-year course somehow I felt like Maybe I hung around after I should have left or something. So, but um, we, so she was there, and so I had this amazing access into this theatrical world yeah. that they had. She would go see all the student plays, um, which were incredible there, and she would be working on stuff. And I loved hanging out um, with those those kids in the workroom. And yeah. then, and then Rebecca wasn't really in the picture because she's six years younger. But then. She ended up drawing, and she was like, she could do the cartoon stuff. She thought about mm. stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so she was in the background, like doing these amazing drawings, and then she went to um, RMIT. And then you know, there's that thing where age compresses, and so it doesn't matter as much about the the distance. So by the time I graduated, Esther graduated pretty quickly after that, and then Rebecca pretty shortly after that. And we we're all trying to kind of doing our own thing um and it wasn't until I took on this project that was a little bit bigger um but I just wanted to paint um and I but I thought that that would look lame which it doesn't you can do that but I thought it would just look lame to put a painting in there and um 
but I had this great idea that I will work with all of Esther's friends who were set and costume designers and then they could fit out the space as if it was a room. And that mm-hmm. project really, for me, affected the way I thought about my practice from future because we did this thing where we, together, I worked with, there were seven or eight of um, these these artists and set designers and costume designers and I would work with each of them and we'd both imagine a character and then they'd go and design the space where that character lived and then I painted the character and it was imaginary and we didn't know what each other was doing until we got there and then we had the craziest install probably ever. <laughs> <laughs> they agreed to stay overnight if they could lock us in. Yeah. Um, and then I don't think we had enough food at one Oh, no. <laughs> of rats, but um it went really well and um it was so transformative and people loved it and <laughs> but it was really cool to listen to what people were saying and then I would be like I'm the artist and so then they would tell me more about what they were um like interested in in the work and tell me about their families and stuff and so um from then I was like yeah I got it sorted I'm gonna be a famous artist <laughs> I feel like around that time, though, especially in Melbourne, there was definitely a like vibe about like painting not being cool or not being enough or not being in fashion. And I think that's shifted now, but I feel like no one painting, like there was a very few people that painted and it wasn't encouraged in mm. um, the way I think like now when I go to VCA and I walk around, I feel like I see a lot more painting happening. Yeah, at the school, it um, when when I got to VCA, in in the painting department, um, I was I just wanted to be a figurative painter, and that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't really know how because as good as those night classes were, like I, you know, I kind of only, I mean, painting is such a process to learn, and so I'd only just kind of scratched the surface, and I focused a bit more on drawing. And so I, when I got that studio, you know how we had those cubicles, I like literally had how to paint books hidden in my locker. And um, I would, like I would get there really early or I'd stay back and I'd read the, um, and they were pretty, like those seven, like $7 or whatever. And they had these um, exercises you could do or like how to paint the sunflower. And I would try and, I wouldn't paint the sunflower, but I'd use as many of the techniques as I could because I felt like I was supposed to have already learned that, like, mm. a taste, um, and I didn't. And so um, I was secretly learning because I also felt – I felt like I couldn't ask, but every time I did ask, people asked me why painting was um, what I wanted to do or they would question painting at all. And my way of dealing with that at school was to – relate it to film and start painting film stuff or relate it to other things. And I went on an exchange to the Slade in London. And when I got there, it was so different. Like there just wasn't that question about painting. Mm -hmm. It was great. Um, So it gave me a chance to look back at like where I think when people talk about the good thing about travel, that was one of it to be able to relook at the way your city is. Um, The, thoughts are and stuff and I remember yeah. them telling me oh yeah Melbourne it's like super intellectual and they're like you can you can paint here and you don't have to be able to talk about it yeah, yeah. it was a relief because yeah. I didn't know how to mm-hmm. but it's amazing that you took that as an opportunity to put your paintings within a expanded situation as well 
yeah. rather than just yeah. being discouraged to think. Yeah, it was a combination. It's always been wanting to be involved in something very collaborative and then also mm-hmm. want to have, like, paint on my own. Yeah. That, that mm-hmm. pool, but working with people and then not – because I do believe you can achieve a lot so much by working – like, you can't – like, with yeah, there's things that you can't do as an individual that you can do yeah. you know, together, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so what was the – so after you did the project with um, Esther, what was the first kind of project where all three of you worked together for the first time? The so this, That was – she got a job, and I can't, I can't remember. It was with Moira Finucane and um, Jackie Smith, so independent theatre makers, and she was kind of interning for them for a little while. And then they gave her more and more responsibilities because they caught on that she was kind of like good and was going to do stuff and show up. And it was too much for her to do. Um, it was like asking too much. So she asked me and Rebecca to help her in various ways. And so me, like secretly wanting to be involved in theater, I was like going home. And so we all jumped in and um, we worked with them and they started calling us the Sisters Hayes um, because we'd show up and you know they were dramatic about it and stuff but it was like a little bit of the the brothers grim type thing then um they officially asked us to do a set design and that was at la mama and it was called the flood and it was a play that about a family drama and i was just like great now i get to live out my dreams painting (laughs) backdrops which is how i thought i was gonna make money as a painter (laughs) Um, i didn't realize like I made friends with people that did that and there was like a couple of companies in Melbourne you had to work so hard and you didn't get to make a lot of choices about what you were doing and it was very technical I didn't understand that process we ended up um working at the mall house on a play called Blood Wedding and um because they'd seen some of our work at La Mama and and by this point, Esther and Rebecca and I were, like, seriously working together. And we would always try and, like, how do we bring the handmade or how do we bring these kind of um, nostalgic elements into where, there's, where there is this real push to have, like, mm-hmm. none of that, because it's, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah. not that people weren't – they were interested to have it. That's why they wanted us there. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when Next Wave happened around that time where we we signed up for, that was 2009, and we got to do our own sort of theatre art mm-hmm. show there. So. Um, were you still having your own practice on the side as well, or like were you kind of juggling both, yeah, or was I one was... taking priority and the other one kind of on the back burner at different times? It could never really be concurrent. Um, it wasn't possible to do like at the same time because with the theater work, you're there, like there's this design element time where, which is um, one of my favorite times where you're just dreaming up the ideas and everything and then go into production. And then once you're in production, you really do have to give everything to that. And even though there was three of us, we felt like we couldn't get it all done. So I don't know how half the time designers do, um, they just work so hard. Like people do 18 hour days and, um, and, and, you know, that kind of thing. But as soon as that the show was over, I was like, switch to painting and mm-hmm. like, then try and paint a solo show. Um, something like that. So there was that element. 
So you are so you're now the gallery director of the Beatrice Ann Hegarty um, Gallery at the University of Dallas. Can you kind of fill us in with what has happened between the next wave show? There was studying a masters in there as well, yeah. um, and then moving um, back to the states and now working within the arts as well. So in 2016, while I was doing my master's I I was in a long distance relationship with my now husband and he had the um smart idea to send me a list of artist residencies in Dallas um <laughs> as a way to like peak my interest to come over so I ended up doing a residency in, in Corsicana Texas and it was a really great painting residency for me like that's what I turned it into I had all the natural light I wanted and I got to like meet cowboys and sheriffs and stuff paint it was living the dream and um, while I was there I had this um, idea to put on a event um, kind of like a show where we made um, chili and I invited people to talk about the building that I was in this odd fellows building and one of the people that came to that was a painting professor from the University of Dallas. And she came along and invited me to do an artist talk at the school. And so I said, sure, that would be great. Because she said, you know, I can't give you much. It's 200 bucks or whatever. And we had a good talk. And then um, I got married to Christopher. And I, you know, made the decision that we would move to Texas. Because basically Texans don't move. So (laughs) (laughs) they just love Texas. He's like, where else would we live? Like, So um, I came here and I didn't know what I was going to do for work. I met the dean at the time and he said, do you know how to, I know you know how to paint, but do you know how to hang paintings? And I was like, sure. And so he said, look, we've got a job going. Do you want to apply for it? And I showed up. I, I did the application, showed up with six people there to interview me. But the painting professor, Kim Owens, was there and she made me feel calm and just, you know, because she was such a great person. And the interview went well and they're like, yep, um, you're hired. And I'm probably, just to be a little bit honest, I didn't really know how to put paintings up like that well. Like, I, I didn't. I wasn't interested in that I really was like I'm a painter and I just want to paint and I ignored a lot of all that advice we did in professional practice or I just didn't really find it and stuff or people just seem to know how to already do it I had to learn a lot mm-hmm. and the show that I got in we borrowed from another university and it was like Andy Warhol's and Jim Dines oh my God. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a real big learning curve Mm-hmm. That's oh. incredible. Yeah. Curating, I had done some. One thing I hadn't mentioned is when after I left university, I volunteered at Arts Project Australia because mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to be an artist assistant. And I I, I wanted to be, um, and, and I had, like, an opportunity to be an artist uh, painter's assistant. And then I also liked the opportunity Arts Project. I'm so glad I chose Arts Project because it was um, – a fantastic place to work and I met so many great artists there and one thing that they have a studio if people haven't been there and then but they also have a gallery where the studio artists exhibit and I was able to ha- have some 
um, opportunity to curate as someone with no experience. So what have been some of the biggest challenges or things that you've needed to overcome to continue in your practice? As a lot of people have mentioned, one of the biggest challenges is how do you support yourself to do all of that that work? Um, and I have to say that um, the financial thing, I did, I was able to find creative ways that um, being able to make work, but they, the creative ways is like not having housing or you know like house sitting um, slash being homeless at times type thing and in a really comfortable way of being homeless in that I was house sitting really nice houses but it was like a six month stint or three months and then I'm like I don't know what's going to happen um these next um the next month moved home a couple of times um there was a really fun time when my mom's like oh yeah I've um you can come back but I've definitely rented out your room to some exchange students I also have had physical things. I had, talking about those teenage years, I had endometriosis and I didn't know what it was at the time, but I had really bad cramps and I couldn't function like two or three days out of every every month. And um, it was really dismissed. So I had this weird relationship with my body where it was like I was feeling like an incredible amount of pain um, and people, like I would go to the school secretary and say, I can't be here anymore. Can you call someone or I need to leave? And they're like, we all get our periods. I was really lucky that my dad had heard um, someone talking about more research into that and hooked me up with some doctors and like got surgery at um, 18, but it kept kind of coming back. And also um, just working with the sort of um, medical establishment as a woman has been hard um for various things and then you mentioned um uh I've got a little baby which is really great um and then she she was kind of hard to come by but also um I had an incompetent cervix which is just the most hilarious name (laughs) (laughs) so I had to go on um four months of bed rest um in the hospital because if I like gravity, like I wasn't able to hold her in. So I was yeah. stitched up by an amazing doctor um, who's really great. And, but it didn't work. So that all of the pressure of um, the my uterus and the fluid and her were like pushing down. And so she would have been basically preterm going up with, um, against things like that have always been tricky. We've also had fibroids. And so one of them burst. They could burst. I didn't know that. So I, was just, I knew I had fibroids, but no one told me some of the consequences. And it was like the worst pain I've ever felt. And then when I went to a doctor and said, hey, I've got um, like that burst inside of me. And that was really, like it was in hospital and stuff. And he was like, yeah, um, you know, they might burst again. But, you know, surgery is painful too. So we'll just leave them and wait and see. Oh, oh gosh. Um, so just like. I think those things, when you don't know how you're going to pay for it, mm-hmm. you go, okay, all right, so I don't have to have surgery. Cool, because surgery costs money. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, like, you're walking around um, in pain. So that's always been hard to navigate. So one of the things I did do is have health insurance, even in Australia, like, 
private health insurance that I was paying um, for because I knew I needed um, potentially needed these different surgeries and stuff to pay for them. And that was a huge cost. So sometimes it was like, do I pay rent or do I save up for these different things? I think that that you just really highlighted that whole thing of like not knowing what people are going through and like physical um, or mental um, health problems that, that um, are not um, visible to like external people, um, yeah. let alone the medical field, which is another story. But like um, when you're like dealing with those things and, you know, needing to show up for work and maintain your practice or study um that's a lot going on and um I think you know it's um and obviously when people are going through it too it might not be something that people want to talk about but um understanding that people within our community are are going through a myriad of different um situations and to like have space and allow, like, have flexibility in schedules and things like that so that people can actually, um, you know, live their life and not be, um, have ex- extra pressures where they don't need to be, I guess. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, I've had very kind people, like, be understanding or know what it's like or different things so that you could kind of get through because I think some of those early impressions were just, like, um, that, it, you know, I was talking about when people saying, well, that's not a big deal or your pain isn't real or whatever. Um, you, know, you kind of internalize some of that stuff. And then, um, and yeah, and when you have like a big production meeting or you have like, an, you know, your show's opening and you have three days mm-hmm. to install and you're mm-hmm. I can't <laughs> get up and do this. So that was tricky. But I think one of the biggest things that was tricky is like, constantly having high absenteeism in a job that I was also taking like you know jobs that I was also needing to take time off to make art um so that was tricky to navigate and advocate for myself I still found it incredibly difficult to come to a point where I got the help I needed so I I didn't have it and that really did come when I had a child because I was able to like what kind of surgeries can we combine (laughs) to um like to get you know the situation going um so those are very like hard hard things I think mm-hmm. moving along slightly um would you mind um telling us what being a practicing artist means to you it, that that question has been um interesting to me because I've I've been kind of debating internally whether or not I'm practicing artists at the moment um and I've decided it means like doing the work that has been the biggest thing is just having time to make work. And it was weird because I decided that it didn't have to have like the next show scheduled in like the, you know, requisite like year or eight months or whatever, or even two years. Um, and um, just being able to sustain some, some time, whether or not, I don't even want to say like each day or week, but just in your life, um, mm-hmm. having time to make work. And I was really glad that I heard an artist when I was 18 or 19 
that said that when they graduated from school, they didn't have a show or anything for a couple of years. They didn't even show anyone their paintings. Like, so they, um, they kind of let a few people in to see what they were working on and then ended up having a show four years after. And something about that really stuck with me because I didn't really, I didn't really believe that. Like I, I realized now I thought, you know, just keep going and just keep doing and your next show is bigger or, and I think at next year, um, I remember someone saying, you know, your next show doesn't have to be bigger. It can be smaller or like, it doesn't have to go in this certain line. So I think it's, yeah, making work or thinking about making work. <laughs> so we kind of touched on this before we started recording, but our next question is usually what does your practice look like? And as you've just said, it is looking quite different now to yeah. as it has in the past um did you want to give us a day or the week in your shoes um either from what it's looking like at the moment or any other point in time at the moment I'll start with at the moment at the moment I'm working um Monday through Friday and I wake up at four and I roll out of bed doing whatever writing and emails or like creative thinking or like planning shows and create this kind of stuff that I can't be interrupted for and do well. Um, and I'm drinking coffee, although I can't drink as much coffee now because Edith gets um, reflux. So I kind of spend that time and she usually needs to feed twice between four and 9am. Um, so I'll, I'll go back when I hear her crying and feed her and then, and then she just, she sleeps, she sleeps the heaviest then. Mm-hmm. And then, we head off to work, so um, at, at 9, and um, it takes me about 30, 40 minutes, depending, um, to get to school, and I teach my first class at 10, so normally I'll have um, packed up her things and my things, and we get there, and I'll meet a babysitter, often in the parking lot. The idea is that I, um, she comes to work with me. I set up, there was a storeroom that I converted into a mini daycare, and so mm-hmm. I hire university students who are amazing to look after her usually from 10 to 3 um, my work was cool with it I presented them with a lot of information about how I will have a much higher morale if I wasn't um, leaving her somewhere else Yeah. because um, that was important to me because I wanted to keep um, her close and keep nursing I actually didn't really want to go back to work straight away so um, that was my compromise by noon I stop and, and um, meet up with Edith and I nurse her and eat my lunch and sometimes have a meeting because people will come in and be like, Hey, and start talking to you and <laughs> trying to take notes, hold a baby and eat a sandwich. <laughs> it gets weird. Um, and then I will usually um, pass her back to a, one of her babysitters and then just do as much stuff that needs to be done there as possible till three. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're installing a show, that schedule is completely out of the window and it's a lot harder and the days are harder than for her as well because we stay till seven or, you know, six, mm-hmm. um, six or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, we leave at three because that's usually when we both start having a meltdown. Yeah. Um, and then she naps on the way home and then I get home and we play and then um, I do a bit of admin stuff see my husband, have a beer, and then we start the nighttime routine with bath and stuff, and we're both out kind of by about 9 or 10, and then we start again. So there's not much um, wiggle room. It's made like 
um, socializing a little bit hard, but we, you know, we still do some of that stuff. Then if I compare to before I left, or well, before I started my master's, I would get up, have a coffee and have like some time or maybe around eight or nine, do a bit of like writing in a journal or like coming up with ideas and then like hop on a tram you know into the city it would take about 15 minutes um bump into a whole bunch of people I had a studio at the Nicholas building Mm -hmm. um have a couple of like random bump-ins with people that would be great and get coffee and cake I was really into cake at that time (laughs) but I didn't care about the coffee I was there for the cake and I'm lactose intolerant so it was a huge disaster so So I'd get up to the studio and be like, oh, my tummy, why did I eat that cake? Yeah, so then I'd get there and I would paint until three and then it was usually time for beers with all the other painters. I had a great floor and then my sisters were, I also had a studio, I had two studios. So I had the sisters Hayes studio upstairs on two levels up and then that's where we would usually eat the cake and then we would (laughs) hang out and like work on theatre shows um, into the evening and then usually go out for dinner and then work late till like 10. Depending if we were in production, like if you're in production, it, everything changes a little bit um, too. But yeah, it would kind of be like that. And then I would walk home, which would take about an hour because I was living in Windsor and I walked from the city. And that was um, really important time for me to um, just uh, – hit the pavement and um yeah and then I'd get home and I lived with Esther at the time and another housemate and we'd like catch up eat some snacks go to bed it was awesome and I miss (laughs) it (laughs) um so Christina what have been some of the more influential resources that have helped you along the way in your practice Okay, so I've got a couple of different ones. Um, I'm going to start with some books because books were an early important part. Um, The first one is called Painting in Reality, and it's by, I think it's 18 Gilson. Gilson? I don't know. Uh That was just my first introduction to a bit of this Edith philosophy. Um, But this, um, this other book, the curator's handbook has been so amazing. I would recommend it to any artist. Um, like even if you're not interested in curating, it just gives you the behind the scenes, intricate detail of putting on shows at all levels. It's like putting a show together, budgets and fundraising, contracts, negotiation, publications. So that if you're on, like, it doesn't matter. I was using this, like when I got my job, like how do I curate and run that gallery? But this is so important to know as an artist and I wish I hadn't like been a little bit more aware of. And then um, this is like kind of relevant to my job specifically, but um, it's got a great title, Managing Previously Unmanaged Collections, a practical guide for museums. Like what do you do when you inherit something that's kind of unmanageable or it hasn't been managed? Um but that one is another one that's great because I've been like, wow, that's kind of describing a little bit about how I've treated my own practice. Yeah. Because I haven't mentioned it. That kind of ties into one of the later questions, but 
looking at that. And then this next one, man, the first time um, my students asked me about how to price works, I seriously had like looked it up the night before, like how to talk to them about it. And I wrote this really weird on the board because I was tired and watched this YouTube video and it had talked about like timesing like square inches by a price and I wrote this really weird thing and I super regret it. I'm so sorry to the students. But um, I found this really helpful um, article um, called artbusiness.com and it's like slash price realistic and it's one of the um, best articles I've read about how to like look into pricing your work, especially if you're not in a commercial gallery situation where someone's coming out with those numbers for you. Um, but, or if you are and you want to be a little bit more um, in charge of how your work is priced or have like um, a negotiation with that, because that is important. Um, like it might be important to you as an artist that you sell out your show at a re like at a lower price, to your friends and family, but not to the um, the dealer. Yeah, and the kind of there's a little bit of a conversation, and you don't want to have like a show where everything was a bit more expensive than you thought it should be, and no one buys it, and you upset about it later and resentful. Like definitely have been in like different situations where pricing um, is something to think yeah, about. Yeah, it's so tricky. Um, so it's hard when you're eating fried chicken all the time, which is what I love to do. And <laughs> like, I definitely, and cause I still love cake and, but I also like sandwiches. I'm like eating a lot of fried chicken sandwiches. So fitness blender, I think it's called fitness blender is a really great, like exercise, like YouTube thing. And it's mm. all, they have so many videos and they're really great because it tells you like how long, I mean, maybe all fitness videos do this, but. It tells you um, how long you've got left or if it's going to get harder. And they're just really intelligent about the way that they do it. And then they have, like, if you only have 30 minutes, you can do this. Or if you, like, need to get really easy or if you just had a cesarean, like, mm. how, how do you exercise then? Um, so I love them. And you can also pay. But they have so much free stuff. So you don't, yeah. like, I pay those. You don't have to do that. Yeah. So there's that. Um, this might be a random one, but I thought I would just give a shout out to a good doctor if you're in Melbourne. Um, his name is Dr. Pavlidis. He takes like bulk bills and all that stuff. But he was just a really great resource for me. Um, I could talk to him about art and different things. And he like encouraged me to get scholarships, go for scholarships and things like that. Um, he's a bit of a photographer himself. There's stuff in the waiting room, but um, this is but this leads on to another thing. If you can't get to a doctor, that free doctor coming to your house thing. Do you guys know about that? No. This is in Melbourne. So homedoctor.com.au. You can go on if um and you can book a doctor after hours to come to your house, and they also like don't charge. Right. Um. And that's like a government thing that I think hardly anyone knows. Um, you can come late at night. So if your schedule is really weird or early in the morning or on the weekends, and they'll give you the prescription in your house, and sometimes they even go to the local pharmacy and pick it up for you. Oh, my God. Oh, 
crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you happen to be traveling and coming to Dallas, I would recommend <laughs> the Glass Tire. Um, it's fantastic. It's one of those. Um, it's like here. It's the longest running um, online kind of gallery resource. Like you know, like remember Art Almanac or. Uh-huh those different ones and it shows what shows are coming up, mm-hmm. but they have really good editorial um, stuff and they do a top five exhibition in Texas. Great. So um, biggest recent resource is um, babiesatwork.org. It's American based, but it applies to, um, to internationally they have done research on how having your baby at work um, can really be beneficial to the workplace, and a lot. And they talk a lot about um, the benefit, not necessarily. They talk about the benefit for the parent and for the child, but they also talk about how it increases workplace morale. It keeps people in jobs longer. Um, there's less absenteeism, things like that. So it has all the numbers. But what's really great about it is it also has press releases of places that have adopted this and their success. So you can kind of like read stories, but also it gives, if you're at a workplace that needs a little bit of convincing, it gives them, it shows how good it's been for the other ones, but also like a press kit yeah. so that they can go through and do it. That's um, so cool. It also, has, yeah, it has downloadable contracts that you can have, which are something that you can present to your employer and say, okay, let's get this all down in writing. What are the policies? What are the procedures? Um, how long is this going to go for? How do you back out if you don't like what's going on? And how mm-hmm. do you, um, you communicate that with me so I'm not stuck? Um, or whatever and so it has different things a lot of them will recommend between six and eight months because then once the child's mobile not every workplace can cater to having a Mm -hmm. crawling like baby proofing basically Mm -hmm. a bit like that so Mm -hmm. in a way um yeah that's been huge i have one more great it's unstuff your life it's by a guy that actually got a random, you know how artists always have these random jobs. So an older artist hired this artist and said, help me with my like crazy life with all this stuff everywhere. And he kind of realized that artists in particular hold on to things because you can use it for a project or you're sentimental or you can do this or that, or you, I don't know. It's, he just found it like to be a bit of a trait and um, that they artists, also had a hard time like maybe letting go and it could weigh you down or you just get rid of everything and then you're like "Ah, I regret that um so he goes through like chapter by chapter to um through like how to organize your computer or like how to organize your photos like your personal photos so that you know like you can access things Mm -hmm. and then also um like what do you do if someone gives you a sentimental gift yeah so if you could travel back through time to the start of your career or when you were going to night class or um, doing some drawings on the aeroplane coming across to Australia, 
um, yeah. and give yourself um, some advice or tell you yourself something that you know now, what would that be? Okay, the first one's super practical. The mm-hmm. first thing I would tell myself is to um, to archive a little bit. You know, you pay attention to your own documentation and um, but keeping track of your own career uh, a little bit in terms of that because I, like, before I even, like, when I moved to Dallas, I held a studio sale, and I can't remember who I sold work to. Mm. Oh, someone posted something on Instagram, and they said, oh, my work is hanging next to Christina Hayes' painting. And I was like, oh, I forgot that, that my painting was in that house, or different things. And so um, the reason I thought of that as my answer is because I'm doing a retrospective of a sculptor that, you know, Edith has been talking to his sculptures. And um, the earliest one is from 1948. But the reason I've been able to do this show is because he kept such great records of his work, what years they were made, the titles, made a catalogue, published it. Um, and everything and so I'm able to go back and find all this original source material um, and like I, I was just kind of like self-conscious that I don't haven't done a lot of that the other bit of advice is obviously I've worked with a lot of people including my sisters and you know people in theater and then you know you go to school and you meet people or you do different projects and really I kind of I regret um if I don't treat people well or how I, I want to be treated um, or if I get s- stressed, especially in like working with, for example, with my sisters, you're close like, or, you know, other like good friends and you're close with them and you can kind of um, put the kind of idea of art or making something in front of the person. And I remember um, someone telling me at one point um, when I was working that it's more important to get the art done or the theater done or the whatever it was we were working on and it wasn't true like that wasn't more important like the person was more important so that's been something that I feel like did take a little bit um like I've just made that like I regret that or made that mistake of um uh not just not being kind like you can always try and be kinder and um the work you know will be there or you can still get it done and you can probably uh-huh. get it better by uh-huh. that. And then if you are starting to um, like get very stressed or very tired or lash out and stuff to step back, take a break or whatever. Cause also the other thing is I've definitely seen a lot of accidents happen at those points as well. And so it's just all about like, um, like looking back at that and sort of saying, Oh, what would have happened if we would have, taken a break or been nicer or treated the other person like better and sending thank you notes in whatever form that you do that is um something that I've always like I try and do but sometimes I let it take forever Um, so that would be other things like Christina just write that thank you note or get it to the because I really do appreciate people but it's easy like how I was talking before oh then I do this next thing it's easy not to um remember to do that and that's one thing I really loved about working in theater is when the production like when it was opening night people would get little thank you notes and flowers or whatever and it just was so nice Mm. for 
acknowledge the other people. Totally. And keep, yeah. Yeah. Um, bringing that into wherever you are. Is yeah. Really. That's a really um, nice sentiment to kind of finish on, and I think yeah, it, sometimes it, it can be um, the stress of the moment takes us oh, you know, away from the humanity of like why the hell are we actually making art in the first place it's to communicate with others and um the least we can do is be kind and considerate in the communication with those around us yeah yeah it's a, it's a nice thing and you 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 work with people again or you don't but yeah taking the time to thank people has been like really really rewarding Thank you so much, Christina, for coming on ProCrack and we're so happy to have you on the show and to finish 2019 and have you as our guest. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you so much for doing this. It's so great for all of us listeners out there. (laughs) I've become such a big fan. So thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. This episode was recorded on the land of the Lenape people. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thanks for listening to ProPrac. You can listen to other episodes and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can stay up to date with what we're up to on Instagram at ProPrac Podcast or send us an email at propracpod at gmail.com.